Why choose a Sleep Number Smart Bed? Because no two people sleep the same. Only the Sleep Number Smart Bed lets you each choose your individual firmness and comfort your Sleep Number setting. The Climate 360 Smart Bed is so smart, it actively cools or warms up to 13 degrees on either side for your ideal sleep temperature. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, plus free home delivery when you add an adjustable base. Ends Monday. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. You know, whenever the kids are playing with the airplanes, I'm, I notice a lot more fighting. Those patterns are really important to pick up on because the whole point of our background behavior analysis is that you are looking at the environment to figure out why a behavior is happening. And the cool part about it is you can change what's happening in the environment to change the behavior itself. Hello, and welcome to the Parentologist Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kim. The Parentologist Podcast is a show about everything parenting with a therapeutic twist. I have a doctor in psychology and am a licensed marriage and family therapist, a registered play therapist, university professor, writer, and mom of two. Each episode of the Parentologist Podcast focuses on a variety of topics related to parenting, family, children, and mental health. I'm glad you're here. On today's episode, we have Mariko Fairley, who is a mom of two and a board-certified behavior analyst. She graduated from the University of California, Los Angeles, with a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology and earned a Master of Arts in Special Education from the California State University at Northridge. She worked with children on the autism spectrum and other special needs for over 17 years, earning her board certification as a behavior analyst in 2010. Before starting her own consultation practice, she was a clinical director at a leading agency that provides ABA, which is Applied Behavioral Analysis Treatment to Neurodiverse Children. Mariko, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So for everyone who's listening right now, Mariko and I have a lot in common. First of all, we are both Bruins. We both graduated from UCLA. Yay, go Bruins. Yay, go Bruins. (laughs) And we both have an extensive background um, in ABA and working with children on the autism spectrum, which I think really lends to a, a lot to what we do now as behavior consultants, as moms, things like that, because we have that background with neurodiverse children and, you know, typical children. And, you know, there's, there's this belief that everything that we suggest to a parent works for all children. And that's just not true. And I like to give parents lots of tools for their toolbox, lots of things in their back pocket that they can pull out, because even though some things might work for many children, every child's unique and not everything we're going to even discuss today is going to work for all kids. Would you agree with that in your practice? Oh my goodness, 100%. And I love that you said that. That's actually sort of one of my mantras is, you know, um, there's this perception that you know, fairness means that everybody is getting the same. But if you have more than one child, if you've known more than one child, I mean, they can be so vastly different. And so for me, I think it's really important to give each child what they need. And that may not be the same thing, you know? And so I have two kids myself. They are polar opposites. Like from the womb, they were different. And if I parented them the same, I'm not really sure how that would work out. I really need to sort of tailor my approach to what each one needs to their different personalities, their different emotional needs, their different behavioral support needs. And so my sort of perspective is 
Um, we're like, I, I also give lots of tools and suggestions. Take what works for your family, for your particular child. If it doesn't work, don't be afraid to try something else. It doesn't mean you did that thing wrong. It just might mean that you, your child needs something a little bit different. Exactly. 100% agree. And like you said, two children in the same household. Um, I'm thinking about, you know, school age children when you have a classroom full of, you know, 20 to 25 students and they all have just different, like I said, personalities, temperaments and things like that. So that's what we're going to be talking about today on this podcast. We're going to be talking about lots of tools for your back pocket, lots of things for parents when it comes to physical aggression. If you have a child who um, is, is hitting a lot, who is biting, throwing, things like that. And we're going to be talking about some other things too, but we'll be talking about it from a positive parenting perspective, which I also appreciate. I also do as a parent myself. Um, I also, you know, in my own practice as a clinician, you know, with my own clients and things like that. So first let's, you know, kind of take a step back and tell everyone uh, what positive parenting is. How would you define it from your perspective? So my perspective is that Positive parenting is focusing on the parent-child relationship and building that connection, building a relationship that is loving, that is respectful, that is supportive, and then cooperative, right? So, you know, it's not that... um, the, the child runs the show. And I think that's one of the myths about, about positive parenting or some people call it gentle parenting is like, oh, you know, the kids get to do whatever they want. The parent is still the parent. The parent is still in charge and is the one who is setting the boundaries. But you're taking your child's perspective. Um, you are certainly asking about their feelings and their opinions and spending time together, showing affection so that you're building that connection because that connection is what leads to cooperation. Kids aren't just going to quote unquote behave because we tell them to. They're going to do things because they're motivated to do them. Well, how do we build that motivation? By building a connection between us so that they want to help us out, that they want to work with us. Yes, exactly. And I love what you just said. And I want to add how important validation is to when it comes to emotions. And I think, like you had said, there's this perception out there that kids can run, you know, run the show when it comes to gentle parenting or positive parenting. And, you know, I like the distinguish um, that that you did with, you know, parents still being in charge. And just because we validate as a parent, just because we validate a child's emotion doesn't mean that we accept the behavior. If they did something wrong, it doesn't mean that we're saying what they did was okay or to keep doing it again. You know, we still, we address what happened. We address the emotion behind it, but then we say, okay, well now, you know, there's, there's the next step, which may be a consequence or something. And so I wanted to kind of dispel that that myth that Mm -hmm. physical parenting or positive parenting doesn't ever have any consequences. So how would you respond to that? Because I hear a lot of times parents will say that to me, you know, it's kind of rainbow, all rainbows and sunshine. And it, and it's, it's not, I think, you know, children still need boundaries and limits and consequences, even if you're coming from a positive parenting perspective. Absolutely. And, you know, it, it's their job to 
push against that boundary to see where it is, to see if we hold it, to see if we hold it consistently. You know, um, I think obviously our, our similar backgrounds really, when you understand how behavior works, right? Like ABA, Applied Behavior Analysis, it's the science of behavior and behavior change. And so having a foundation and just understanding the way that behavior works, we know that all behaviors are communication and all behaviors happen for a particular reason. So I think a lot of times, let's take an example of what you were saying. You know, you have a child who hits. Maybe, you know, every time they play with their sibling, they run over and they hit their sibling. Well, a parent who is maybe really triggered by hitting might just react and react in the form of a punishment. Maybe they will yell or reprimand. Maybe they will take the toy away. Maybe they will take the child's, you know, screen time privileges away. And and that's just a reaction because we as a parent, we're human and we get triggered. But that doesn't address the underlying reason why behavior happens. And so that is a really huge component of positive parenting is trying to get to that underlying reason why the behavior is happening and figuring out, okay, I don't want that behavior to happen. I don't want my child to hit. Let me figure out why they're hitting. Okay. They're hitting every single time they see their brother playing with their favorite toy. Right. Ah, They want that, their favorite toy. That's certainly a good understandable reason. What do I want them to do instead? And it's our job to teach them a more appropriate way to communicate to get their needs met right? Yes. Our kids are acting out because in some way it's getting their needs met. And so we want to teach them a more age appropriate alternative way to do that. So yes, absolutely. Consequences are happening. We don't want them to be what I call contrived consequences, sort of pulled out of thin air, kind of doesn't make sense. It's not related to the situation that's happening. I see that a lot with when I start working with the family. Um, you know, they're, they're upset about their child's behaviors and like, well, I just don't, I don't give them the iPad anymore. They just took it away like for the whole day or for the whole week. And I understand that because you might think, well, it's teaching them a lesson, but is it? The only way to really track that is to see is the behavior changing over time. And the best way to change behavior is to have natural and logical consequences. So a natural consequence is one that actually we have no part of, right? It's right. your child, your child forgets their umbrella and, <laughs> yeah, you know, um, your child doesn't want to wear their jacket. And instead of fighting over it, you might just say, okay, go ahead. You can go off to school. Maybe you, you're, you're really like, you know, a parent like I am, you might tuck it into their backpack, um, but you let them experience the natural consequence of what their, their behavior is, right? right? They made the choice to not bring their jacket and the natural consequences that they'll be cold for the day. Yeah. And that's the end of it. Right. Another natural consequence of let's go back to hitting is if a child is hitting another child, the child who gets hit may not want to play with them for a while. Right. right? Um, and I think that's a really natural social consequence that they're going to have to experience. Um, so, uh, in addition to natural consequences, we as parents can implement logical consequences. They are implemented by an adult, but they are directly related to the behavior that we're trying to change, right? right? So for me, that might look like um, I might give the child a warning, like, 
hey, bud, you need to have gentle hands. If you want the toy, you can ask for it. Um, but if we can't have gentle hands, then we're going to have to put the toy away. Right. And that's not something that is meant to be um, punitive or mean, but it's setting a boundary and it's holding the boundary um, to ensure that everybody is safe. And it makes sense because it's directly related to the behavior that we want to change. Exactly. And I love how you mentioned a little bit earlier about tracking behavior. And I know I do this with my clients. I'm sure you do something similar where, um, you know, I, we call it an ABC chart, right? <laughs> Look yeah. at the antecedent, the behavior and the consequence and, and, you know, tracking their behaviors. Like you said, looking at the why behind their behavior, looking at the motivation behind their behavior. So a lot of times, especially when I was working with schools and now with parents in, 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 at home is looking at, is the child hungry? Is the child tired? Are they acting out because, you know, they're not feeling well? Do they have a fever? You know, whatever the case is, um, like you said, maybe it's because their siblings playing with their favorite toy and the parents trying to, you know, make, you know, have them get along and they're saying, share your toys and, you know, kumbaya. But at the same time, that child's being triggered because their favorite toy is being played with by their sibling and not them. So they're acting out. Um, so, you know, I always look, you know, I have a chart that I give to my clients and I have them track when the behaviors occur, you know, what time of day was it? What happened right beforehand? Uh, how long did, let's say, the tantrum or, you know, the, the behavior itself last? Um, was it mild? Was it moderate? Was it severe? Um, you know, and then, you know, going on from there. And then you can really start finding patterns and, and tracking that. Um, and then not only tracking it when it happens, but then also figuring out when it improves, you know, I always ask my parent or my parents to scale their children's behavior every week when I see them in session. What was their behavior on a scale of one to ten this week? So we can really notice when improvement starts happening because when a child starts, let's say, quote unquote, misbehaving, parents, you know, get really overwhelmed with that. I'm a parent too, and you are as well. So I think, you know, we get overwhelmed sometimes. You said like we're human, and so you know that can become very overwhelming sometimes when your when your child's acting out a lot and you feel like I've tried everything, I don't know what to do anymore. But when you start actually you know, looking at the data and putting it on paper instead of just having it in your head and saying, okay, well, last week was a, you know, a, a five, but then this week actually was a little better. It was a seven. And then you start looking at those numbers over a month or two time, you actually start noticing, oh, things really aren't as bad as they seem. Right. Right. Do you do right. similar or do you help parents in that way to kind of notice the whole picture than just being in the trenches at the moment? Absolutely. I think that it's so important to even just jot down a few notes. If you don't have a formal data sheet, that's okay. Jot down a few notes on a post-it or in your phone. Um, every family that I work with in private practice, they have some version of a, a tracking sheet because what happens is in our mind, we either have that recency effect where we're holding the biggest, baddest behavior in our minds and making it, you know, a, a bigger deal maybe than it was and not picking up on those moments where all of these appropriate behaviors are happening, exactly. right? So yes, I think um, jotting down can really give us perspective. And then we can notice, gosh, you know what? Every day at 4.30, I'm starting to hear a lot of whining. Right? <laughs> or every time we go to grandma's house, this happens. Or, you know, whenever the kids are playing with the airplanes, I'm, I notice a lot more fighting. Those patterns are really important to pick up on because the whole point of 
our background behavior analysis is that you are looking at the environment to figure out why a behavior is happening. And the cool part about it is you can change what's happening in the environment to change the behavior itself. And it might be a simple tweak, right? Like teachers are pros at this. They do this all the time. You put Johnny and Mikey together and they are just arguing constantly. I separate them in the classroom and it's much more peaceful. Um, There's so many different cues and strategies that we can use. And I think a big part of positive parenting is being proactive right? Setting up the environment for success. It's setting your child up for success and therefore you in turn for success. A hundred percent. And I'm like that too with my own kids, especially when we go to the store, I'll kind of set the stage before we go in there. I'll remind them of the behavior expectations and I'll remind them of the rules, you know, and saying, this is how I expect you to behave in the store. You know, this is what we're not getting. You know, we're not buying any toys today or we're not doing this, especially when we do our target runs, you know, but I let them know ahead of time and I set them up for success. So they know exactly what I'm expecting. And then, so they can follow suit when we're in the store and, or when they go to school, I remind them, you know, this is, you know, be calm and controlled and follow directions and listen to your teacher and things like that. And, you know, really setting them up ahead of time for those prompts. So then once they get to school or they get to the store, we are, like you said, being proactive instead of reactive when they do um, have a bad day and they do react in the store. And then, like you said, we're, we get flustered. And then in the moment we kind of on a whim, um, you know, take something away or whatnot. So I'm a Absolutely. Believer in that. <laughs> yes. Oh, we're same about the target runs, right? I need you to hold on to the cart. And <laughs> if you want to go look at something, just ask me and we'll go. And yes, we're not going down the toy aisle today. <laughs> right. Now, how do you feel about uh, redirections um, and timeouts? I'm going to have you think about that um, and, and thinking about redirecting kids when they are misbehaving and redirect them to something else. And then we're also going to talk about timeouts. We're going to take a quick break first. Hi, I'm Dr. Kim, the parentologist. As a wife, mom, therapist, and all-around juggler like most of you, I lead a hectic life, and sometimes that means indulging in foods on the go that my stomach doesn't always agree with. Thankfully, Pepto-Bismol provides me fast and effective relief for all kinds of upset stomachs. Having a little too many guilty pleasures at a family barbecue or birthday celebration may lead to indigestion or heartburn, so I always keep Pepto on hand to get fast relief when I need it the most. Pepto-Bismol, use as directed and keep out of reach of children. Okay, we're back. So I wanted to ask you how you felt about redirecting behavior. So limit setting, uh, you know, I use the ACT method sometimes with my clients, but, you know, looking at, you know, looking at the behavior that, that's happening, look at what they want to do and then redirect them to do something else. And then looking at timeouts as a consequence, is that a good way to, to, to have a child, let's say, quote unquote, learn from their mistakes? Or how do you feel about those? Yeah, these are these are good questions. Um, I actually sort of would separate those two questions. So first taking the redirection. So if I'm seeing a challenging behavior, my first step is to figure out the why, right? Figure out the underlying reason. Um, once I have that, let's say, you know, your child is whining because they want something, um, then I want to acknowledge the want or the feeling, right? We talked about that validation being really important. Not that you're necessarily going to change your mind, but 
letting them know you understand, you hear them. I hear you. You really want a cookie right now. Um, but maybe that's not available. And so then you would shift to offering a choice. And this is where possible redirection might come in, right? So choices are really great because it helps the child feel in control of the situation, which we all want to feel in control in some way. But it also shifts them away from the thing that they can't have to something that they can have. And so I might say, I really hear you. You want another cookie. That's not available. If you're still hungry, you can have a banana or some yogurt. Right. And I'm shifting away from the thing that they don't that they want, but they can't have. But I'm still offering them something else. So it might be something like um, I really want another show. Okay, we're all done with screens for today, but you can go outside and ride your bike or um, we can have a snack. Right. And you're giving, so you're always giving them another option. And that is sort of redirecting their attention away from, you know, the, the issue. Um, and I think that's really important because my sort of rule of thumb with, with families is you can acknowledge the want or the feeling one time. We don't want to get into a back and forth with them because that's when the negotiating comes out. That's when that escalation of the tantrum happens. You know, you're still sort of standing firm. This is the boundary that I've set. I understand you're unhappy with my decision. And we're now we're going to move on. If they're not ready, if you know, if a, if a child's in a full-blown tantrum, there's nothing you can do, right? You're just going to ride it out. And then once they're calm, then you can shift to sort of the next thing. Um, But I have no problem with redirection. I think, you know, if you're doing all of the other steps proactively, you're acknowledging them, you're giving them choices. um, It's okay to shift, right? They need to learn how to do that in their life as well. And over time, as they get older, that should happen a little bit faster. Right. Now, if you're trying to redirect a child, let's say they're jumping on the couch and it's obviously not safe. You know, you don't want them to do it. And then you use, I call it the choice method because I do the same thing and I love it. It works so well. It empowers kids and it avoids powered struggles and everything. I love it. So I'm glad you mentioned that. But I know when I've talked to some parents in the past, when I've given this advice to them, they would say, well, why am I giving my child a choice to almost reward them or to, you know, give them something positive when they've been doing something wrong? They feel like Mm -hmm. because the child did something wrong initially, therefore that equals a consequence as they like a timeout or something being taken away. So how, how would you address that with a parent when the child is misbehaving, let's say, or yelling in a store, whatever the case is, mm-hmm. and then when you try to redirect, redirect them and give them a choice, and maybe one of those choices is, you know, maybe a more positive choice. Well, you know, if you stop jumping on the couch, then we can go outside or grab a snack. A parent might say, well, you know, that's all fluff. What, why am I giving my child maybe a reward when they were just doing something bad? Yeah, I love this question. Okay, so this is where going back to that underlying need is so important. Let's take the couch jumping example. Um, so in in behavior analysis and psychology, we really look at four reasons why behaviors happen. They want something, they don't want something, they need attention or connection, or it feels good in their body, right? Right. In the couch jumping example, my guess is it feels good in their body. So we need to teach them, remember going back to what we talked about, we need to teach them another way to get that need met. How can they communicate that 
in a different way. So I probably wouldn't follow up the couch jumping example with the choice of, do you want to go outside or do you want to snack? I would say, if your body needs to jump, you can jump on the trampoline or the floor. Yeah. If your body needs to sit, you can sit on your knees or your bottom. And I think it's really important, especially if you have a child with a lot of sensory input needs, help them tune into what those specific needs are. Um, My daughter likes to go upside down a lot. She does a lot of bridges. She lays down on the couch upside down. Um, And so I'm always asking her, what does your body need right now? And she can tell me because we've worked on it for so many years. I need to go upside down. I need a, I need a squeeze hug. Um, Help your child sort of tune into what their specific sensory needs are so that you can help provide it, but in a safe and an appropriate way. Yes, exactly. A hundred percent agree. And I think you know, so many children have sensory input needs and there's so many ways that we can, you know, go about doing it. I know I used to have um, some of my clients um, just jump on a, jump off a bed onto a bunch of stuffed animals and they loved the feeling of the softness yeah. of this and that. And, you know, so but like you said, it's a safe, a safer way to jump off of something than, you know, jumping off a, you know, a couple, like half, halfway down the staircase or whatever it is, because they're looking for that thrill or that, that sensory need, you know, to be filled. So I Absolutely. Love that. So one other question on that topic, and then we'll go right to some, some practical tips that you have about biting, um, hitting and throwing. But I wanted to ask you about, uh, kind of dispelling a myth about praising kids for things they should already be doing. So I come from a PBIS background, as as I mentioned to you earlier off the air, uh, where, you know, we would catch kids being good. We would catch them for the things they were doing positively, because as research has shown, kids will uh, do what they're being paid attention to. So if we pay attention to their positive behaviors, then they're more likely to end up giving more positive behavior. If we keep, you know, um, getting upset with them for every little thing they do wrong, then, you know, that's the way they're kind of getting attention. And so then they might repeat that behavior more. So, but, you know, when we say things, you know, when kids are supposed to keep your, you know, sit in a chair and put their feet on the floor during dinner time, or they're supposed to throw their, you know, trash away in a trash can, or, you know, the things that typical things that kids are quote unquote supposed to do. I still praise my kids and my clients for those things because I still feel like that you never really can have enough positive, um, you know, behavioral support. But how do you feel about that? Or have you have any pushback from your parents talking about, you know, well, they should already be doing that. So I don't actually need to praise them for that. That's just something that they're just supposed to do. And teaching kids those behavior expectations, too, is another thing because, you know, sometimes kids may not know what they're supposed to do. And they kind of aim in the dark and then they think, oh, I did it. I did it wrong. So now I'm getting in trouble, but I didn't even know what I was supposed to do in the first place. So I think it's twofold, but how would you respond to that? Yeah. So I think a lot of the criticism that I hear from people regarding praise is two different things. One is that you're creating a people pleaser. And two, the other is thing that I hear a lot is, well, then you're just teaching them that they, they're only going to do something to get something, right? Whether it's praise or some sort of, some form of a reward. And, you know, I, I actually, I see both sides and I probably stand somewhere in the middle. Um, I really think that praise can be highly effective for behaviors that a child is still learning 
right? It's not completely in their repertoire. They need to learn how to do it um, and all of the steps of maybe a task. So I think that's where it can be really helpful. And for behaviors that don't happen very frequently, right? Like if a child is not sort of independently making their bed or tidying up their room or taking their plate from the table to the sink, Acknowledging those things when they happen, I think, is really helpful. And if that child enjoys getting that feedback, that praise, it will reinforce the behavior, meaning it will increase the future likelihood that that behavior will occur again. Um, I, I do think that it is important that praise be authentic, um, that it doesn't need to be forced on the one hand, I think it's important that it's very specific. So we're not just throwing out like a random good job. I'm proud of you, but letting them know, you know, I, I really appreciate that you helped me carry the groceries in from the car. Um, I, I think praise can also look a little bit different where it's not about us imposing like our pride and our thanks upon them, but it can also be something like, Oh, I noticed that when you shared your toy with your sister, it made her smile. Oh, that's a good one. And it's just really pointing out something that happened in the environment. But it is, I think, building up the intrinsic reinforcement of them doing that thing. Right. Yes, exactly. And and I think intermittent positive uh, acknowledgement is also good. So that cuts down some of those expectations of them saying, well, I put my, my plate in the trash. Aren't you going to give me a high five right? <laughs> or yes. whatever it is? Like they're not asking for the praise because you're doing it intermittently too, I think also helps. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. And if we think of ourselves as adults, right? If, if you're partner or your boss or your parent never acknowledged anything that you did, right? If I made dinner for my family every day for a week and no one said, hey, thanks, honey. Thanks, mom. You know, that was a good dinner. I would be pretty bummed and probably not really be motivated to make dinner the following week, right? So we all need feedback. Um, And I think that we can be really intentional about it, you know, And I also think if we can get into the weeds just a little bit, um, praise may not be a reinforcer for every single person, meaning it may not be what motivates them, but we all sort of have our love languages. Mine happens to be words of affirmation. Tell me you love me. Tell me I'm beautiful. I'm here for it. (laughs) Um, You know, I have one of my kids who really loves to hear compliments, we call them compliments at home. Um, loves to be complimented. My other kid could really like take it or leave it. What's meaningful to her is um, affection, is my sitting down and playing with her, um, showing interest in what she's doing. So praise, quote unquote, praise or reinforcement could look different for every person. And I think that's why it's really important to sort of individualize it. Right, exactly. And I think just, you know, putting it out there too, that I think a lot of parents push back with me and they'll say, well, I don't, you know, they think, you know, the reward system, if you will, has to be extravagant, you know, where they are going to be spending tons of money, like where kids are earning toys and ice creams and things like that. And it doesn't even have to be, it really could just be 
a verbal praise or a high five. And, you know, if kids are on a sticker chart or some type of reinforcement system, that's great. They do work wonders for so many kids and they are appropriate in so many situations, um, but they can earn things like maybe staying up 15 minutes later after their usual bedtime or maybe 15 minutes more screen time, you know, as, as kind of a reward or incentive, if you will. So I think I just wanted to make sure that parents know that it doesn't always have to be extravagant or cost a lot of money. It really, you know, can be something pretty simple that you can implement at home, you know, pretty easily. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So let's go back to timeouts real quick. I don't think we ever really address that when it comes to positive parenting. Do timeouts exist with positive parenting and are they appropriate? Uh, yes. I think that timeout, it, I mean, it's, in the literature, it is an evidence-based strategy. It is highly effective for reducing unwanted behaviors if you implement it correctly. I think there are in different variations of timeout that we can talk about. And I would guess that some people are using timeout and not even realizing that what they're doing is timeout. Hmm. So right. one, one notion that I want to dispel is that there's this whole sort of movement for time in. Yes. And in, in the research, time in is not the way that it's described in a lot of parenting methodologies. So that uh, what I'm hearing, a lot of people think time in is the opposite of time out where you sit with your child, um, you know, you're not moving them away from anything. You're just, you're sitting with them until they calm down. Maybe you're doing some emotion coaching. Um, so in the literature, though, time in is really just the normal environment that the child is playing in that's full of fun things, you know, full of their toys, full of a lot of reinforcement and praise, and then removing them from that situation is considered timeout. Right. Um, the one variation of timeout that I think a lot of parents implement that they don't realize is timeout is removal of a toy, is removal of an item. And so... I think that is a very logical consequence if you're using it in an appropriate way, right? If your child is continuously banging on their brother's head with a toy and they're not following your coaching to maybe play with it in the appropriate way, then removing the toy is probably a very logical consequence, which happens to be a timeout yes. for the toy, right? You can call it timeout for the toy, but that's exactly. what it is. Yes. Exactly. Um, you know, I think there are times when it is appropriate to remove a child from a really overstimulating situation. Um, and I don't think it needs to be where you're like locking your child in their room by themselves. I mean, that's not, I don't think that's how timeout, that's what people think of when they think of timeout, but I don't think that's really the intention of timeout. I really think of timeout, it, it is a reactive strategy that when a, a problem behavior occurs, when a challenge occurs, you're, you know, probably removing them from the situation, but sort of to take a breather, right? right? Sometimes parents need that just as much as the child. If that, if that room, if that environment is just way too loud or overwhelming um, and they just need to take a little break to control their body, I think that's an appropriate consequence. I think that's a logical consequence. Um, if you're just sending your child away and you're not giving them the tools to be able to work through those challenges, then I think, you know, that's where, where sort of we need to bridge that gap a little bit. Exactly. And I do think it's important um, for anyone who's listening right now, 
that after something like that occurs, that it's really important to have a conversation with your child after when you're both calm, when you're both, you know, emotionally um, non-reactive to then maybe talk about what happened, you know, um, and, and, and have that conversation after the fact. Like you said, when they're full-blown tantrum, when there is a situation where maybe even the parent is overstimulated or um, isn't emotionally regulated, then, you know, then everyone needs to calm down first before having a conversation. But I think it is important to have that conversation after, you know, just to talk about what happened, maybe what could we have done differently next time. Maybe that's the time when you validate feelings, you know, talk about, well, you know, this may have been a different choice you could have made that wouldn't have resulted in this and, and kind of have that teaching moment, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I, if possible, I always like to do that. Timeout is never my first um consequence. What I would like to do is if I'm seeing if we can kind of jump into the behavior that you were talking about with like the biting and the hitting, yes. right? We, we want to understand the underlying reason, right? My child is biting because they want something or they don't want something or they need my attention or connection, or maybe it feels good. You've really got to parse that out because you're going to respond based on the why. You're not going to respond with a blanket you know, time out because it may not address that need. We really want to address that need. Um, okay. Let's say that your child is biting because they don't want to do something. You're saying, okay, um, you know, it's time to clean up and now we're going to go to school. Bite. Right. Okay. So I, they don't want to go to school. That's what you sort of figured out. Or they don't want to do something. You're going to teach them another way to get that need met. In that moment, it might not feel um, easy for you because you might feel triggered. But I like to do what's offered a recall, what I call offering a redo. So where I'm having them practice, it's almost like a rewind, where I have them practice a more appropriate way to get their need met. I love it. I'm not ready. I don't want to go. I need help. I need more time. Um, you know, or maybe there's an, an way underlying reason where, you know, they got into an argument with their friend the day before or their teacher, you know, put that put them in like a timeout. Who knows? There's so many underlying reasons. But I think it's important for teach our kids to say, like, I need help. I'm, you know, I'm not ready. Um, and then once they do that, then we just keep going, you know, right? You've right. helped them address their need. Okay, so I'll give you one more minute, then I'll help you get your shoes on, and then we're going to go. Um, offering a redo is really helpful in sibling situations as well, because there are so many learning opportunities there, right? right. Um, where they're fighting over toys, and that's when you can, if you can catch them before it escalates too much. Because I get once it escalates past a certain point, sometimes the only answer is separating for exactly. a start. But if you can catch them before it escalates too much, then you might say, okay, I saw you grab that toy from your brother. Let's try that again. How can you get that in a more appropriate way? Right. You know, can I have a turn? Um, and you're facilitating, but in a neutral way, right? You're, you're not acting as like the referee and deciding, you know, you're right and you're wrong, but you're, you're really trying to broadcast, you're trying to coach and help them work through it. They need the practice. So there needs to be a teaching moment. If you can catch it when it's happening, it's great. If, like you're saying, it's escalated past the point of being able to work through in the moment, then doing it later once everybody's calm is really key. 
Yes, exactly. And, you know, something I like to do too is like a cool down area where it's kind of like a self-regulation area where, you know, there might be a pillow and maybe some sensory toys and some, some calming type things and maybe like a five minute timer, like sand timer that the child can maybe implement themselves where it's not punitive. It's not because they got a timeout and they got in trouble. It's not a reward where if you do good, you can go to this area. It's really just an area in the home where when you notice your child getting escalated or if they notice themselves getting escalated, they can say, hey, I need you know five minutes in the cool down area just to regulate their bodies, you know, and like I said, have some sensory toys there or whatever it is so they can calm down and, you know, and then move on with the rest of the day. Uh, which I guess could be considered a, a form of timeout, if you will, because they are taking timeout. Um, I feel like parents should have those too, honestly. Um, more self-care for parents. But um, but I like the way that it's addressed to the kids, especially because when the kids hear the word timeout or go to your room or you know when they get removed from a situation, I think it's um, sometimes can be erring on the side of shaming to a certain extent where the child feels like, oh, I did something wrong and I'm in trouble again and I'm sent to my room versus, mm-hmm. hey, I noticed that you're, you know, need a few minutes to calm your body down. How about you go to your cool down area and just draw a picture for a few minutes and then let's talk again and see how you feel. I just feel like it, it just addresses, uh, you know, it, it kind of does the same thing, but it, it just addresses the child in a different way. Yeah. And I, you know, I really conceptualize the calm down area as a proactive strategy. So if you have this place where the child is comfortable, maybe a few of their favorite things. I mean, I think that that's awesome. And and if they can regulate in that area, that is, that is the goal, right? We all need those coping skills. I look at it as proactive because I like to have my kids go there when they're calm to learn how to use those things and to use those tools to help them regulate. The more practice they have going to those the calm down area when they're calm, the more likely that they're going to use those same tools when they're starting to get upset. So whereas timeout is highly reactive and we're removing either a, an object or the person from a situation because they can't control themselves in that situation and they need a break. It's like a forced break. The calm down area is more proactive because they can go there when they're calm and, or when they notice, Hey, I need some help calming down. Um, And I think that is one of the significant differences too. Um, Obviously in a, typical timeout, you wouldn't have like an area with a lot of fun things right. versus in a calm down area, it's proactive. You might have a few calming items or their favorite things. Exactly. Okay. Last question. Let's get back real quick to physical aggression, hitting, biting, throwing, and, and things like that. Um, you know, what would you suggest to a parent that comes to you with a child, you know, let's say between four and seven, you know, the younger kind of preschool, early elementary age, uh, who is being sent home a lot because they're hitting at school. They're hitting their friends at school. Uh, they're saying no a lot, um, maybe even biting, you know, um, siblings or, you know, even peers and things like that. Um, what? How do you address that to a parent, especially if you're coming from a positive parenting perspective? But what are some tangible things we can share with listeners today of what, what first step can they do? And maybe what are some practical tips that they can try with their own children when they're in that situation? Absolutely. So I think the first thing I would want to do is get to the why, because that biting, that throwing, that hitting, 
Those are all forms of communication, not the ones that we want, but the child is trying to tell us something. What are they trying to tell us? Jot down some notes. Ask the teacher to jot down some notes. When and under what circumstances um, are these behaviors happening? Because we need to figure out the why. Um, then you ask yourself, okay, what do I want my child to do instead? All right, maybe they're starting to throw their throw pencils in a classroom when the task gets beyond 15 minutes. Okay, let's give them a break before 15 minutes. You know, maybe again, like a particular toy is triggering um, a behavior at home, or maybe every time it's time to go to swim class, my child is having a tantrum and biting. Okay, what adjustments do we need to make, right? What do I want them to do instead? So we need to see, okay, do we need to teach our child a new skill? Or do I just need to coach them in that situation to give them more choices, to give them more support? Um, you know, again, it's really important that underlying reason is going to help decide, like, I have to teach this skill. I have to offer more choices. Um, I think it's really important that when we are setting boundaries for our kids, that they're clear to them and that they're reasonable. Right. right? Um, that's part of sort of like the positive respectful aspect. And so, um, you know, if our kids need help with something that we give them the tools to ask for help. If it's a, if it's a boundary issue, if it's a sort of what I call like a health and safety issue, it's okay to hold firm on that. I'm sorry. If you want to ride your bike, you need to wear your helmet. Right. Um, that type of thing. So, um, it's hard to, for me to give like a specific strategy if I don't under, know the exact underlying reason. And I think that's the first place to start. Um, once you kind of get that, then start acknowledging when your child is doing the appropriate thing. When they start asking for help, when they do ask for a, a hug instead of a, you know, a hit, or um, when they are asking for your attention in an appropriate way, those are really important to acknowledge and praise like we talked about. You know, make sure you're giving your child one-on-one -on -one time every day if you can. I know it's hard in you know, the daily grind to find those moments, but five or 10 minutes at a time really can fill your child's cup so they don't need to act out in order to get that attention that they're probably craving. Yes, I'm totally into that. That's like my first prescription is how, usually my first questions when a parent comes to me and says their child is misbehaving in some way or acting out in some way, I always ask, how much time do you spend one-on-one -on -one with your child? It's literally one of the first questions that comes out of my mouth. And yeah. a lot of times the parents say they're not, or they say, well, then we went to the grocery store today or ran an errand today. I'm like, no, that's not the same. You know, um, the intentional one-on-one -on -one time, one -on -one time can make such a big difference um, when it comes to children behaving better or more positively. So I am all in for that, you know, and something I, I don't know if you like the strategy or not, but um, I have a client who, you know, tends to sometimes hit and whatnot. And um, I, you know, taught them to put their hands in their pocket whenever they feel like they want to, you know, put that fist up, they put their hands in their pocket instead. It's kind of just like a physical way to, to, to stop that. It's part of the teaching, you know, uh -huh. um, but I, I tend to notice it a lot more when kids are nonverbal, you know, because they don't have the words or the speech and language or communication skills to ask for help or say something. Uh, so they tend to bite and hit and throw because that's, that's like you said, the way they're communicating because they don't have those verbal skills instead. 
Right. It's easier, right? That it, when you're still learning impulse control, when you're still learning those communication skills, it's easier to use your body to act out. And so in that case, yeah, I love that. You're replacing the hitting with the squeezing of the hands or, you know, a stress ball or, um, you know, some kind, sometimes kids who aren't yet speaking, using some sort of visual is really helpful. So, um, in your calm down corner, maybe you have other options, you know, um, hugging a stuffed animal or reading a book or coloring or, um, you know, we, I do like, um, smell the flowers, blow out the candles to, to simulate, you know, deep breathing. Um, yes, that's, that's the answer, right? Like, what do you want your child to do instead of this thing? How can you teach them how to get their need met in a more appropriate way? Yes. And I love the visual chart. So anyone who's listening, that's (laughs) another one I love. So thank you so much for your time today and all of your wisdom. I loved our chat. Where can people find you online or on social media to follow you and maybe get more information or possibly even work with you in the future? Thank you for having me. Um, You can find me on Instagram at parenting underscore fairly and um, on my website, parentingfairly.com. Wonderful. Well, I hope you all follow along. I love following you on Instagram. I love all of your quick tips and advice, and I hope others do as well. Uh, Again, I just love this conversation. I know we could probably talk for hours (laughs) going back and forth and everything. So um, again, I appreciate your time and, and thank you for sharing everything with our listeners today. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us today. I can't wait to have you back for more. Make sure to subscribe to the Parentologist podcast so you don't miss an episode and make sure to tell your friends. This podcast is not intended to be a replacement for therapy. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please call 911.